Welcome to The Hope Project. On this podcast, we talk about matters of sex, sexuality, sexual shame, purity, and how that all relates to Jesus and God. We hope that through this podcast, you'd be able to recapture the beauty of sexuality. Journey with us as we seek to better understand sex and find freedom along the way. This podcast is a part of season one, and if you haven't yet listened to the trailer for season one, I recommend you do that now before listening to this podcast. On the podcast today, we have Dr. Alan Yet with us. He is an associate professor of intercultural studies. He is an author of a book called Polycentric Missiology, 21st Century Mission from Everyone to Everywhere. He's a married man to a woman who is also a professor in the communications department at their university, and he is a parent to a new, wonderful baby boy. I'm excited for you guys to hear from him today. I'm excited for you guys to learn about what it means to be a part of this growing movement of intercultural and interracial dating. So let's dive on in. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast today. I'm so excited to have Alan with us. We are talking about interracial and intercultural dating, which is probably a question of why are they talking about that? What are they doing talking about these things? We don't have to talk about that anymore. It's 2019. Um, well, we do, and we will. But before we get into all of that, Alan, could you just give us your background, who you are, where you came from, what's going on in your life? Um, what's what's in Alan's life up to this point in sure. 2019? Thanks, Colton. It's great to be here. Um, well, I grew up uh, in the Southern California area, and I was born and raised in uh, the States, but my background is Chinese. And so mm. my dad's from Taiwan and my mom's from China and they're mm. immigrants. So I'm a second generation, mm. um, Chinese American. Mm-hmm. Um, but I only lived in Southern California up until I graduated from high school. I went over to the East coast where I did, uh, my undergrad at Yale. I studied history mm. and then I went to Gordon Conwell seminary mm. to do my MDiv. Um, I was thinking about being, having a pastor at first, but then I got mm. really drawn towards missions. Mm-hmm. And so I went further East, and I thought maybe I'll keep going east until I circ- <laughs> circ- come navigate the world <laughs> and come back to LA. But um, so I went over to the UK and I spent a year wow. doing a second master's degree, Master of Theology, at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland. That was wow. a heck of a lot of fun. Yeah. And then I went down to England and spent four years there at Oxford University doing my PhD. Sweet. Uh, and uh, I studied missions. And so. Sweet. I became a missions professor after that. Yeah. Um, Biola called me back to Southern California, so <laughs> here, here I right. came. Yeah, so <laughs> full circle. Yeah, uh. so it's been a joy being back here. I, this is my eleventh year teaching here at Biola, and um, in, in the middle of my Biola career, I happened to meet a lovely, beautiful woman, <laughs> uh, Dr. Ariana Malloy, who is now my wife. Sweet. And so we've been married for four years, and we have a four-month-old baby now. Aww. His name is Asher. He's a joy to our hearts. We're getting very little sleep, but <laughs> all is good. He's worth it. Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. So you got your ring by spring then, I guess. Uh, yeah. Yes. I tell people I met my wife in college. Nice. So. <laughs> <laughs> like, At wow, Biola. College sweethearts. <laughs> yeah. That's so cute. It's like, well, actually, we were professors. Yes. Oh, sweet. Alan, I'm so excited to have you here because I think the topic we were talking about today is just one that we were even talking about before the podcast is just one that no one talks about in general no one talks about sex sexuality but like when you think about sex and sexuality we don't even think about like oh wait what about intercultural interracial dating i mean white (laughs) americans at least don't think about that um on the on the first forethought um so i guess a, a question to kind of start us off is why do you think it's important we talk about that today 
Absolutely. I think it's important because there are so many interracial couples now. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you even look uh, 10, 20 years ago, there weren't that many, mm -hmm. but today it's like all over the place, or at least in California, it's all over the place. <laughs> I mean, true. I'm sure if you go to, you know, the middle of America, you yeah. may not see so many, but uh, certainly it is all over the place um, where we live. And mm -hmm. even the fact that Barack Obama, our previous president, was half white, half black. So, mm -hmm. I mean, this is something which is on everybody's radar, um, mm -hmm. even if they don't consciously think about it. Yeah. So, and I think the future is that you know, we, we just had a U.S. census and they asked, mm -hmm. like, what is your ethnicity? And you check those things off. And I think more and more the reality is going to there's going to be so many people who identify with multiple categories. Yep. And yep. if we don't understand this or wrap our minds around this or think that people can only be one thing, then we're missing out on actually what the future of America might yeah. look like. Yeah. And why do you, I guess, to pull it from culture, because I think that's fascinating. Even when we think of the census coming up, I think once we get those results back, I think that'll be just fascinating to see what is the demographics of America now and even more so where is it going absolutely but two kind of why do you think it's important that the church talks about kind of intercultural and interracial dating right so I teach missions in mm -hmm. Biola we call it intercultural studies but essentially in when, when I teach my students about what missions is I like to say that one of the best definitions is reconciliation mm -hmm. uh, I get this from second Corinthians where it says that um, God uh, has called us to be his ambassadors of reconciliation mm -hmm. because he's um, reconciling the world to himself. Mm -hmm. And so reconciliation is break, um, sorry, it's <clears throat> restoring the broken relationships. Yep. Um, and so if you look at uh, race, we've been so fractured in America yeah. today, but really the word race is sort of funny because we're one race. Yeah. We're, we're the human race. Yeah. I mean, we ha may have different ethnicities, but mm -hmm. we're, we're all one race. We, it doesn't matter if you're a secular Darwinian evolutionist <laughs> or if you are a biblical fundamentalist. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone believes and agrees that we all come from one source. Uh -huh. The fact that we can all interbreed proves this, right? We yeah. all have the similar genetics, and so uh, we may look different. But so we tend to overemphasize these external differences. But we're really one yeah. race, and yeah. I really think that uh, we need to see much more of our commonalities than our differences and yet the differences exist and we need to acknowledge those and mm -hmm. know how to navigate those things yeah. a lot of people today talk about um different kinds of intelligences and we have <laughs> iq which is intelligence uh -huh. question that's like can you solve a math problem or mm -hmm. uh you have eq which is emotional intelligence and then now they're calling about talking about cq cultural intelligence yeah. and this is a big thing because people say that eq and cq are probably better indications of success in life than IQ. Mm -hmm. Employers are looking for this. Can you mm -hmm. navigate different yeah. emotional and cultural differences? Yeah. And so I think this is really important. And especially mm -hmm. when it comes to romantic relationships, mm -hmm. you're seeing this a lot more. And there's so many stereotypes and people are have uh, a lot of negativity associated with these stereotypes. And yeah. so I, I hope to deconstruct and unpack these today. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think I think that's fascinating because if you look at the idea of race, not to get into history of <laughs> where did race come from, but it was like in the 1400s by Portugal, basically. Um, and it was used to, in a sense, I mean, race has always been here in the sense of what you were talking about. We are one human race in the sense we can all interbreed, like that's okay. Um, but the idea of race according to skin color came about so much later and it's so much newer and it's because of oppression and wanting to, in a sense, you know, oppress a certain group. And the only way you can do that 
if you want to do it just wide ranging by what they look like externally by not figuring out exactly where they're from is by just looking at the color of their skin. Uh, but we're not. <laughs> That's not, right. This is not a race podcast. This is a sex podcast. But they're they're intertwined. Yeah, um, absolutely. I mean, especially in American history. Um, I don't know any other country in the world that I think has faced kind of what America has in terms of ethnicities, cultures, races, all coming together in this hub. I mean, we are a country of immigrants from everywhere, every corner of the globe. Um, and so if any country has to deal with intercultural and racial dating, America is probably one of the first and foremost. And so that's why we're talking about it, because um, I think we need to. And in the past, you weren't allowed <laughs> to marry across certain racial lines, especially from white to black, but also other ones were frowned upon. Um, yes. And in fact, I, and you might want to delete this from the podcast, but, um, <laughs> that's okay. you know, Bob Jones University, yes. which, yes, you know, is one of the most fundamentalist. <laughs> Uh, they did not allow interracial dating until I think the year 2000. Yep. Um, I mean, at least in their constitution, I don't yeah. know, like in practice, but I don't know if you, have you read the color compromise, but Jamar no. Um, but he mentions it where, yeah, in the seventies they were like hardcore, like we still don't allow it. And it took until 2000 for them to officially repeal it. I don't know if in the nineties, if they like laxed yeah. on it, they didn't enforce it, but it's crazy to think. This Christian university, Ronald Reagan praised Bob Jones University in the 80s when he was running for president, like until 2000, a Christian one, in a sense, in their bylaws at the very minimum, if not like in practice, did not allow interracial dating. Which That's is, it's crazy. Yeah, that is crazy. And on the other hand, uh, Christians have also been some of the staunchest abolitionists. You know, I think mm-hmm. of one of my mm-hmm. heroes, William Wilberforce, MP mm-hmm. in England, who abolished the slave trade in England. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you have... Uh, Christianity with a very complicated history yes, with race, yes. sometimes positive, sometimes <laughs> negative. And generally, sometimes like the best people at like doing what God, I think, intended and sometimes the absolute worst. Yes. Like we are and a lot of times we are the polars, like the polars of goodness and maybe even the polars of just misguided. Yes. Um, actions, which I think when you look at intercultural and interracial dating today, like if I talk to some of my friends about it, they'd be like, why would... Why do you talk about that? Especially my white friends. It's like, why would you even talk about that? Like, we don't have that problem. Like, people are, you know, look at Obama. Like, we don't have to worry about that anymore. That's just, you know, fluid. That was in the 60s. <clears throat> like, it's our grandparents' generation that would be like, hey, you can't, you can't do that. Um, but I want to tell a little story about um, a time from when I was in, I think, junior high. And my sister was in high school. And my sister was kind of in the party scene. Um, she's, she's a beautiful, lovely woman. Um, very sociable, high EQ and high CQ woman. Um, and so she's going to this party with two guys from the basketball team, and they were two black guys, two African-American guys. And they stop at, like, a CVS to get gum or, I don't know, maybe they got alcohol. <laughs> they had fake IDs or something. And so they stop there, and it's like, these are basketball players, so they're tall, big, strong. Um, and they, like, see this white guy kind of staring at them, and they're like, okay, like, this is kind of weird, but, you know, whatever. Like, people stare sometimes. It's whatever. And so they, end up, they go to the party, um, they go inside, they dance, drink, I don't know, whatever. I don't know what happens at the parties my sister went to in high school, <laughs> I don't ask. Um, but when she came out, there was a sledgehammer-sized dent in our windshield. Um, and it was like, there's it's a party, so there's cars all across the street, they're all lined up. And it was just our car that had this like huge crash in the windshield. And it's like, well... Unless someone just randomly somehow, like a bird hit it or a rock hit it, it was probably that white dude um, who saw them and followed them to the party and was so pissed off that my sister 
was with these two black guys that he, in a sense, in him, it was probably like he was protecting her. You know, he's protecting her from these guys because he thinks they're bad for her. Um, and so whenever this kind of question comes up of like, why should we even talk further about interracial intercultural dating? One, because America's becoming more interracial. But two, it's because it's like, well, these people still exist out there. Like, they're still a part of our society who are like, hey, I'm not okay with whites and blacks, you know, and even using that terminology. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think that story helps illustrate because we think it's like, well, yeah, Grandpa John, like he hated it, but like we're woke now. <laughs> like we're millennials. Like we don't have that, um, but it's just as prevalent with us. And so I guess moving from that, um, how do you think kind of when we think about interracial and intercultural dating, how do you think this varies from culture to culture? And like, are there stereotypes involved? Kind of maybe even <clears throat> talking about body images and especially male body image. Kind of what have you seen in your experience in your life in terms of like from culture to culture, from race to race? What are the stereotypes that exist in America? Right. These are great questions. Well, part of the issue is that America is a bit of an experiment because. <laughs> In many cultures in the world, they're fairly monocultural and mm -hmm. monoethnic. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, with globalization, that's not that's wholly true, but uh, America is definitely one of the most intercultural, interracial countries in the world. Probably mm -hmm. the only country which exceeds us would be Brazil, I think. Yeah. I mean, go to Brazil, you have white, black, brown, Asian, everyone mm -hmm. uh, seems to be in Brazil. So, but uh, when you see this sort of quote unquote melting pot, it's not. In the past, we used to call it that, but it was really a, like a tossed salad, right? <laughs> yeah, it was like, not. yeah, it was not a melting pot. You have all these different people, but they don't really mix. They just no. exist side by side. Yeah. But today it's becoming a melting pot now. Mm -hmm. So we're starting to see in the last generation or so, people actually uh, getting married and having, having kids. And so, and it's a little bit complicated because now we're trying to unpack like, okay, what does this mean for us in terms of... Um, especially with America, which is so race conscious in terms of power. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of it has to do with power. Mm -hmm. And you see this in Paul's epistles. He, in Galatians, he talks about there's no Jew or Gentile. So he's talking about race, mm -hmm. um, slave or free. That's the social class and male or female, that's gender. But mm -hmm. he, he even unpacks that in Ephesians and also Colossians, mm -hmm. right? He talks about race, class, and gender. And so these are biblical categories that are Pauline categories, and these are all power dynamics. Mm -hmm. And so in reconciliation, it's always like, how do you reconcile these different people who have different power levels? Okay. Mm -hmm. So, and I know that uh, a lot of times, uh, especially for white people, they don't like to think about it because, um, and I, you know, I know the words white privilege tends to raise a lot of defensiveness and hackles. But what I love to do in one of my classes is to unpack what this word, these words white privilege mean. Yeah. Um, I, I almost wish I could relabel the words because yes, I think that actually be helpful because I mean even I like I'm okay with white privilege and talking about it and acknowledging it but even when I hear it sometimes I'm like man like not, yeah not me like right I worked hard <laughs> right right because what I always get from white people is like well I'm not privileged right because yeah. I don't drive a Rolls Royce yeah. I don't get the red carpet rolled out for me right yeah. in fact I have a single parent and I'm like yeah. working two jobs just Pick to make myself ends up meet. on my bootstraps exactly just like everyone else. exactly so what I actually sort of prefer I haven't completely landed on this but it's sort of uh, I think I'd prefer white neutrality hmm. uh, or white normativity mm -hmm. okay because I think that's a little bit more accurate mm -hmm. and there is privilege in normativity and neutrality yes. because it basically means that the world 
operates according to your culture. Hmm. And so for a lot of people of color, the world doesn't operate to their culture. Um, so when people of color... In my w- world, you mean like the world you are currently living in. Yeah. Like, like, not you, maybe the global world, although that, right, I think that's you're true right. as well in some ways, but especially like the American world, mm-hmm. like it's yes. not operating towards other cultures. Yeah. White, oh, America still has white normativity. So yeah. the, the, the norms and the uh, culture and the expectations is all the way white people do it. And I don't think there's like intention of racism or anything like that. I want to be very clear about that. But it's just this is the way that things are. This is the way that society is structured. Mm-hmm. And so people of color often always have to translate. When they walk into a room, they have to translate. Like, how do I say this in a way that white people accept it? Or yeah. how do I dress in a way that white people accept it? Or how do I, you know, act in a way that white people accept it? Or even it? if they'll just understand it. Mm-hmm. Like, not even if they'll accept, like, can you just understand right. like, what's about to come out of my mouth? Right. And so for people of color, there's always a translation that has to happen Mm -hmm. in any public situation. We have to translate white people don't have to translate. And that's what I mean by white normativity. It's just, um, you know, you're you're innocent until proven guilty. I think for a lot of people of color, you're guilty until proven innocent. Okay, so. okay, And that's what I mean by the power dynamic. Well, I think even to to interject real fast, um, if you look at like heteronormativity, like think about sexual minorities. So the LGBTQ community. Like when they walk into a room, they have to do the same kind of translation of like, okay, how do I come off as straight so I'm accepted? Sure. How do I like translate what I'm wearing, who I am? Like it's that same kind of thing where it's we're not saying the heterosexual community is necessarily oppressing them, although they might be. Right. It's more this is what's normative. So then if you are not fitting that normal scale, you in a sense are kind of viewed differently unless you conform in some ways or figure out how to like kind of fit in. Absolutely. And so with a lot of white people, you just don't have to think about it. You, yeah. you can walk into any situation and you don't have to think about it. <laughs> yeah. Whereas for people of color, there's always this part of our brain which always has to translate. And that's hard, you know. Yeah. I don't think most white people are trying to be oppressive or racist or whatever, but it's mm-hmm. just that they don't have to think about it. And that's mm-hmm. the privilege. Mm-hmm. So when that's it really comes to, that yeah, really when it comes to body type and body image. So, again, the white is the norm. Mm-hmm. So what is attractiveness? The white is the norm. And so if you look at white guys uh, or white women, right, then uh, what is the standard of beauty? Is it blonde hair and blue eyes? Guys right? have to be above six foot. Yeah, guys have to be <laughs> above six foot. Is yeah. it uh, fair skin? Mm-hmm. Is it um, certain proportions to uh, body type? And so, and you definitely even see this in Brazil, for example, you know, Brazil being maybe the only more multi-ethnic country than the United States. And you look at, it's so multi-ethnic and yet you look at all the models and you see like Giselle Bunchen, right? Mm -hmm. And so she's white, right? Mm -hmm. And so that is what you see on the billboards. That's what you see in the magazines. And it's not representative of the society as a whole. And so what does this do? Well, uh, several things. Uh, it creates a lot of insecurity in people of color who don't look like that. Yeah. Because even though they're never told this, the message implicitly is always you don't look attractive yeah so growing up like oh, i don't have that body type i don't have that skin color i don't have that hair type and right? it's impossible right for you to, it's not like oh we like skinny people although there's questions about what that means but also it's like well maybe you can control that maybe right but it's like you can't control whether you're six foot five no. you can't control whether you have white skin you can't control whether you have blonde or oh, you can bleach it i guess <laughs> sure <laughs> look weird um so yeah it's like you can't even you couldn't even if you wanted to no reach the standard right so 
here's let me just give you my experience as yeah. an Asian American male growing up. Um, I do think that on if you put together race and gender, and you put a hierarchy in America, right? I think Asian males would be pretty near the bottom. Mm-hmm. And part of the reason is because Asian males are de- generally not that tall or uh, built or whatever it is. So I'm five foot eight, right? So I don't conform to this sort of typical white male uh, stereotype of masculinity. And so, and also I wasn't ever terribly good at sports or anything like that. Mm-hmm. So growing up, you know, I realized, I noticed that I didn't get a lot of women interested in me. Yeah. Right. And so what does that do to a young man when, you know, all my white friends are getting all the girls interested in mm-hmm. them, but I'm not getting any of the and girls. Especially interested. when that's like the prime currency growing up, like in high school, the prime currency is, is the other gender attracted to you? Yes. Like even not even your grades, your right. performance, even not even your athletic performance. If you're like an ugly star quarterback, that's not as good as being like the hot lineman. <laughs> like right. You, it's like, yeah, it's, it's the currency uh, of growing up. Absolutely. And it has to do with self-esteem mm-hmm. and how you view your, view yourself and value yourself. And so I think that was a little bit hard growing up because I felt like, oh, no woman is attracted to me. Now, I have to say, this is just a side note that, you know, um, with Asians, we do tend to look younger. So, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes you hear African-Americans who will say black don't crack, right? Because uh-huh. <laughs> they, they don't tend to wrinkle as they get yeah. older. And that, you know, we also say Asian don't raisin, right? So <laughs> it's just like, um, and so I'm about to turn 44. In fact, my birthday's tomorrow, July 26. And uh, people look at me and they think that I'm actually maybe 30. So I'm like, now it's paying off. I would have guessed 33. All right. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks. So I'm really pleased with that. Like yeah. later on in life, I think it's great to be Asian in the sense that we still look young. But when I was younger, when I was in high school and college, it was actually a curse yeah. because I always look five to 10 years younger than I am. So mm-hmm. if I was in high school, I looked like I was in junior high. If I was in college, I looked like I was in high school. So part of it was that, you know, mm-hmm. uh, but part of it was racial. Like I didn't look like I didn't have the height or the build or the coloring that the majority culture would find attractive. Mm-hmm. And so then I thought, well, maybe I'm not attractive then. Yeah. Right. On the other hand, you have like black males who probably have uh, been uh, over sexualized um, in a way and maybe a predatory way, but, mm-hmm. um, but are seen as very masculine because they're tall and muscular or whatnot. Mm-hmm. Right. Or at least that's they the match stereotype. Like the, the body build. Right. That white males aspire to. In right. A sense. And black males definitely go through their own share of um, stereo- negative stereotypes. Like they get arrested and incarcerated mm-hmm. far more than other races. But in terms of like attractiveness, I think that black males are often much higher on the hierarchy than mm-hmm. Asian males. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, Asian females, however, are also much higher on the hierarchy than Asian males. Mm-hmm. I mean, my Asian female friends, they would date you know, <laughs> every race, because every race of guys found them, found them attractive. Yeah. And, you know, part of it has to do with this over fetishization of them, but they're petite or they're, um, you know, mm-hmm. exotic or whatever. Mm-hmm. But, but here's Which is, the, it's those words just like to describe a human being is like, <laughs> you're so true. Like, that's so right. in how like stereotypically it's viewed, but it's just like, man, like 
imagine if you took like you took away the human from that and you just use those words it's like are you describing a human being probably not right <laughs> but it's okay when it's you know attractiveness anyway yes keep going, keep going. this is good yeah so you know it, it's so interesting when you look at mixed race couples mm-hmm. especially if it's white and asian and there's a reason why white and asian i think happens more than other races because i think part of it is it does have to do with like lightness of skin color Mm -hmm. and uh maybe even socioeconomic class or whatever so yeah but whenever there's a white and asian couple like 90 percent of them the guy is white and the girl is asian Mm -hmm. okay so what's going on here Mm -hmm. i think it has to do with um in some ways it's almost like when you see this old rich guy with a hot young woman right yep. <laughs> and you're like well there's n- no surprise there right she's yeah. after him for his money and he's after uh-huh. her for her looks right uh-huh. okay so uh, i mean i'm not saying you can't have love in such situations <laughs> but certainly love like you know what they're after right yeah and in some ways when i look at white guys and asian women and i have to be careful here because i have a lot of friends who are white guy wow. you know asian female couples and they're wonderful and i would never ascribe like you know this kind of superficiality (laughs) to them but socially the reason why it works is because the white guy has social power Mm -hmm. i mean if you talking about that hierarchy there's no one higher on the hierarchy than the white male Mm -hmm. and the asian woman has the exotic feminine petite Mm -hmm. you know uh sexuality about her and so both sides are like wow you know like they're kind of fits what they want yeah it fits what they want yeah and you it's because it's coming from an honor shame culture and asian cultures and so the greatest honor is to move up in class to marry a fine man right and so what is the highest pinnacle in american culture right the white man right um and so of course it makes sense that you'd be drawn yeah. to that and the parents would probably be for the most part like yes like, yes unless they're like really holding on to their korean roots or their right. chinese roots and they're like nah like <laughs> don't right uh, other than that like it's probably for the most part like oh yeah that's a great idea and, and to be really stereotyping you know what what is the thing that men want most in a woman her looks and what is mm-hmm. the thing that women want most in a man security mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and so they're they're getting what they want right yeah. so yeah where okay so this is completely speculative um it's like where where do you think that came from like obviously power dynamics are at play and they've been at play for a while but there's a part of me that thinks around and this is again completely <laughs> speculation but around the vietnam and korean wars yes. is maybe when media started picking up so all these war vets get back home right and they fetishize the Asian women there sure. because, one, they were sexually abusing them while they were, or just casually meeting them at clubs or something. But, two, they wanted to desexualize and, in a sense, emasculate the Asian men because they were fighting them um, in war. And so when you come home from that, it's just like when you come home, like when we're fighting the Russians. Like we pay the Russians as they're all these mobsters that are just like dirty, you can't trust them. And so when you look at the the Vietnam War, especially when there's guerrilla warfare, oh, you get so mad they're not doing it honorably. So you demask, like you desexualize them and emasculate the men and then fetishize the women. So when you have this whole millions, millions of men who are driving the industry, the media, the consumption of goods, they come home and like then the film industry start picking up and putting Asian women in prominent sexual features. And especially when you look at the porn industry, um, 
this so again completely speculation but it's like i wonder where you really see in media at least or in like magazines and culture like when did that fetishization happen of asian women and like kind of the desexualization of asian men yeah absolutely i think you did such a great job unpacking the history of this and a lot of it comes from the wars right yeah uh you have uh, the World War Two, the Japanese were the bad guys, yeah. and you know, you had... <laughs> another war exactly. The, yeah. They call them Yellow Peril, right? Yeah. And then um, the Korean War, Koreans were the bad guys, or at least the North Koreans were. And then the Vietnam War, the Vietnamese were the bad guys. So, and Viet... when did Hollywood boom? Right between the fifties and seventies, right. especially like media boom. I mean, it's post World War Two, so we're all just like. Yeah. And but, y- you look at these portrayals of Asian males and they're always like the evil guy or the, you know, the dorky guy, yeah, like the nerd who's like doing accounting or something. Yeah, breakfast at Tiffany's, yes. uh, Mickey Rooney. Yes. I mean, that that is just all over Hollywood. So yeah. and so, yeah, those things definitely contribute to this stereotype. And so um, and I think what's especially hurtful is sometimes Asian females. I've had Asian females come up to me and say, I would never date an Asian male. Because, you know, they've kind of bought into what masculinity is from the white perspective. And so Mm -hmm. they would only date white guys. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, that's even harder to swallow when it comes from someone of your own ethnic background. Yeah. Yeah. So I think what's kind of interesting is that my wife and I break that norm. Oh, yeah. Because (laughs) she's white and I'm Asian. And we get people looking at us and asking us, like, you know, like, oh, how did this happen? Right. So, like, like are you guys friends? <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> What's going on here? <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. And, uh, you know, there's a lot to our story. But part of it is that although my wife is white, for sure, um, she's also ethnically Jewish. Mm-hmm. And so she understands racial oppression. Mm-hmm. She gets that. Um, she's had a lot of anti-Semitism thrown at her in her life. Not a lot, but some, you know, so sometimes mm-hmm. Jews can sort of hide. They can blend in with white people. So they don't mm-hmm. people don't always know that she's Jewish, yeah, yeah. but she, she certainly felt it. So I think that's made her a lot softer towards people of color. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, Jewish culture, interestingly, has a lot in common with Asian culture, mm-hmm. you know, like uh, this concept of the tiger mom, you know, mm-hmm. like you have a mom who's like says to you study hard and mm-hmm. practice the piano or the violin mm-hmm. and like, you know, go to an Ivy League school. <laughs> right. And become a doctor or a lawyer. Yeah. That That's the. T- yeah, I know. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that's a, I mean, I had a tiger mom. And exactly. by the way, um, you know, proud tiger mom. Yeah. Proud tiger mom. I, I, people usually th- use this term in a negative way. I, I don't see it as negative. I had a tiger mom and mm-hmm. I love my mom. She was great. Yeah. And, and of course, it can be negative. It doesn't have to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think my mom employed it well. She basically instilled in me that a good work ethic. So, yeah. and I'm like, yeah, what's wrong with that, right? So, mm-hmm. and I a lot of my success in life today, I think, can be attributed to her, like high education and hard work and things like that. So, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, again, back to the Jewish and Asian thing. So, not only do they have the tiger mom thing in common, but also um, the uh, uh, the need for or the direction towards frugality. So, mm-hmm. oh man, Asians and Jews, they're just always looking for a deal. <laughs> right? It's like sort of joke about this, but it's true, right? Yeah. Like, um, but I think there was a lot in common between our cultures, even though re- interracially we were different. Mm-hmm. So, but I think also a lot of it was just my wife and her tender heart and her openness towards other races. And she's always had this kind of, openness to her so i really appreciated that yeah yeah i think 
like your story is such a inspiration in a sense. I mean, you maybe not always view it that way, but so I have several Asian, French, Chinese, even Indian, um, where it's just like they've they've gone through Biola, a Christian college, and they just get so frustrated because they're like, man, like no white girls want to date me, like none of them, and it's like you might get like a white girl here and there, but it's like you feel like you're like the third option. Like they're going to go after the white guy first and then maybe another ethnicity first. And then maybe they'll come down to you. Maybe if you can get your personality to win them out, (laughs) but that takes so much time and energy and you have to be on your best behavior all the time. So it's like, man, I just feel for my brothers and sisters where it's just like, man, you feel like you're fighting this uphill battle just to be one accepted, but two to just seen as like attractive. Um, which all of us want to be seen as attractive, that like we're worthy of intimacy, that we're worthy of being known in that kind of way. And so, man, yeah, your story is a, is a huge story for like my friends, especially for some of them where it's like they were raised in very American culture, and they're like, yeah, I really only want to date a white girl. I'm like, well, we need to check that. <laughs> we need to check that because that's the same thing that you're sad about is that the white girls only want to date white guys, but now you only want to date white girls, and you're saying like, no, I don't want to date Chinese girls or Korean girls or Indian girls, and it's like, well okay like let's let's find a balance here of like let's fight against these bad systems of stereotyping body image and sexualization but at the same time like we need to check our own hearts and like okay what races and cultures have i like kind of desexualized in a sense where they're not even attractive um it doesn't mean you have to think everyone's hot (laughs) it doesn't mean you have to think everyone's sexy but at least to like dignify them in a sense like no you are attractive doesn't mean that i'm gonna marry you doesn't mean that i'm gonna take you on a date but like you are an attractive woman are you an attractive man um and that may not even be just because of your physical appearance but because of like who you are as a person which i think is like in the christian vision like this idea of like ever judging someone by the look of their face their look of their belly <laughs> the color of their skin even in terms of just attraction is so preposterous and even atrocious i think to the christian vision where it's just like are you serious like go read just one gospel or like one letter of Paul and like that will be dismantled in the first few chapters. Um, but yeah, I guess a question to kind of take from all this because at the end of the day, like my, one of my friends who's like only into white girls, like maybe that's not his fault. Like, or, you know, my white friend who's only into white girls as well. Like maybe that's not their fault. Like, and so let's get into parenting. Like how does parenting do you think plays a role into intercultural interracial dating we talked a little bit about how parents might be like pushing towards status and honor whatever but how do you think parenting plays a role and how kids see other races and other cultures yeah great question so it's interesting because parenting absolutely has a huge role so i think we get lots of different um influences on us Mm -hmm. right we have we've just up to this point been talking about how society has influenced our perception and i completely agree with you like on the one sense uh you like who you like right Mm -hmm. but on the other sense you also have to check yourself and say wait why do i like what i like right (laughs) um and do I like French toast because my mom fed it to me every morning when I was like from the ages of five to ten? Right. Or is French toast actually like just like my preference? Like it's just right. good, but it's it's a good breakfast food amongst waffles and pancakes as well. <laughs> um, or is it is it French toast truly the supreme? But yeah, yeah keep going. Absolutely. You know, what, my wife and I before we got married, we both individually wrote sorry not wrote but read a book uh, by Dr. Henry Cloud, who is the co-author of Boundaries with yes, John Townsend yes, yes. and. So, but he wrote a book called How to Get a Date Worth Keeping. 
Mm-hmm. And it's sort of like the opposite of Joshua Harris's I Kiss Dating Goodbye. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Joshua Harris Then is, I love it. I will buy that. <laughs> I'll go home and buy that book right now. And both are Christian books, you yeah. know, but they just come from different angles. And Pseudo-Christian. And so yeah, yeah, cases. yeah. Um, and Joshua Harris said, don't date, just court. And yeah. Henry Cloud, who's a Christian psychologist, says, actually date as much as possible. Yeah. Now, I need to be very clear. Yeah, don't date, just court. But like when prom comes around, uh, take her to the court court but don't right. don't date her uh, <laughs> yes. it'll be really easy i promise <laughs> right because what ended up happening with i kiss dating goodbye is like oh you ended up thinking you have to marry the first person you date and mm-hmm. that could often be a very bad fit and welcome to christian college <laughs> i know <laughs> Here we are i know actually i saw this funny um ted talk called the mathematics of love and they actually did a mathematical formula on like if you go on a dating app like mm-hmm. um, you should never right just stay with the first person that you meet because you haven't seen what's out there yet right mm-hmm. um, that's pretty bad for you to just go like stick with the first person you meet but so do you hear uh, that everyone who's on hinge or tinder well you shouldn't <laughs> be on tinder but if you're on hinge or christian mingle <laughs> or yeah. coffee meets bagel or farmers only uh don't swipe on the first farmer right. you see wait for the third farmer uh from a different farm and then that's the one you marry there you go um but on the other hand you also want don't want to wait too long because if you wait too long you know you, you reject you know the first hundred people you meet then then you know you're kind of resigning yourself to the fact that there's not much left so and you're gonna wallow and just like i have so many friends that just like if eh, she doesn't have you know nice legs or she has a weird quirk or right. she's too shy or she's this and then all of a sudden it's like you've gone through 150 girls yes. <laughs> and none of them are good enough for you right and right. it's like okay, okay and then but they're like why aren't there any like hot guys or just awesome guys at our school like oh my gosh there's no good ones here and it's like well you just disqualified 150 on one attribute or physical characterization alone exactly <laughs> so like, maybe let's go back uh, exactly going. You're, you're going somewhere good no no this is this is great um, so this TED talk that's called the mathematics of love, I can't remember the exact statistic they gave, but they said, uh, mathematically you should choose, you know, the, uh, 27th person or, or mm-hmm. something like that. I, I don't even remember what the exact stat was, but, um, th- essentially that's what Dr. Henry Cloud is advocating in some sense. He says date as many people as possible, but let me be very clear what he means by dating. He does not mean have emotional intimacy with them or physical intimacy with them. He just means go get a cup of coffee with them. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, what does this do when you just go get a cup of coffee with a lot of potentials, right? Mm-hmm. Um, he says the point of this is to get to know yourself better mm. because you can go with all these stereotypes and say, oh, I, I want this. I want that. Everyone has their list, right? Well, I they, mean, on, on dating apps, you can put like a million preferences. Right. Like, I like brown hair, you know purple shoes (laughs) like you know green eyes and it's like oh my gosh yeah and and the problem is a lot of people don't know themselves yeah so he says go on as many dates as possible and that will help you know yourself because you know there may be something on your list that you're like that's a non-negotiable and you go out on a date with someone who doesn't have that attribute and you're like Mm -hmm. actually you know what i like that right (laughs) this person is different than what i expected or they have an attribute that i never even thought of or it's like i mean even getting into one of my previous podcasts like i will never date someone who's not a virgin and then like you go to get coffee like oh wow they're not a monster (laughs) right they're not just a sexual fiend like they just made a mistake maybe you know uh yeah it's fascinating where it's like those one things where it's just like 
Okay, let's just think about that for a second. Right. And so when it comes to uh, interracial dating, you know, some people are like, I never would date someone of another race or of this particular race. Mm -hmm. And it's like, have you given it a try? You know, go, go out on a date with them. In fact, um, Henry Cloud even says, always give someone a second chance. Even if the first time doesn't go well, mm -hmm. always give them a second chance because a lot of times people don't make a good first impression, right? Yeah. So. And I, I just think that, yeah, you know, when it comes to these stereotypes and your lists and your preferences, like mm -hmm. give it a try mm -hmm. and see, you know, God may break down your stereotypes and mm -hmm. may change things for you. And yeah. I think that's really interesting. Yeah. But coffee's scary. Like asking someone out, you know, sure. if, if I don't make out with the girl after a first date, what's it all about then? You know, like if I, <laughs> <laughs> what's my gain in all of this? If I don't get some physical or emotional intimacy, then I'm out. I'm out. I don't want to know myself. I just want to disassociate through relationships. Um, anyway, that tangent aside, we'll talk about that on a different podcast. Um, I guess with every podcast, we kind of want to end. This will take us a few minutes, but we kind of want to end with kind of what is what is the hope in all of this, um, especially the Christian hope? Um, what is the hope? So I guess the first question I'd ask you is, what is the hope you'd give or what is the hope you have for the church and talking about interracial and intercultural dating and dealing with it and approaching it and encouraging it? What would your hope be for churches um, in, in doing kind of interracial and intercultural dating? Right. One of my favorite passages of scripture is John chapter 17, where Jesus prays his high mm -hmm. priestly prayer. And mm -hmm. he says, he prays for unity for the believers. And he says, I pray that they may be one just as we are one. He's talking to the father, right? Mm -hmm. He's talking about, this is the kind of unity that's in the Trinity. Mm -hmm. um, I and them and you and me, and may they be brought together in complete unity so that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. There's a, uh, unity and reconciliation and ecumenism in that which is so intimate it's the intimacy of the trinity mm -hmm. okay so when it comes to unity in the church there's different ways to do this right there's fellowship unity um and racial reconciliation but i think one thing that people don't often talk about is interracial uh unity in terms of uh, m blended families or mixed families and i think this is really beautiful what does Jesus say in John 17? He basically says that this kind of unity and this kind of reconciliation is a witness to the world hmm. that Jesus is true because yeah. Jesus breaks dividing walls. Hmm. When Paul talks about race, class, and gender, he, Jesus breaks dividing walls. And the problem is so often the church is actually more behind the times than the secular world. And I mm -hmm. think that's a real shame. Mm -hmm. I mean, the fact that we believe in the Savior who can break down these dividing walls and yet... Martin Luther King Jr. said over 50 years ago that 11 a.m. on Sunday morning is the most segregated hour in America, and mm. it's still true today. Yeah, And it's like, why isn't the church being more radical and more amazing in these respects than the secular world is if we have Jesus, yeah. you know? On my, episode, on my episode with Sarah Schwartz, um, she quoted someone. So I'm just going to say it was Sarah that said it because I don't remember who she quoted but she was talking about how the church is often the taillights of justice when we should be being the headlights. Yes. Uh, we're kind of at the back of the car, kind of shining light on what's behind. So we're already like a few paces behind where the headlights are actually showing us what's the future ahead. But I think that captures what you're talking about, where it's just like, if the church is the most segregated hour in America, what does that say about what's wrong with the church in America today? Right. You know, I think about um, in the first century, because people might say, well, this is a 21st century phenomenon. Are you just... Mm -hmm. 
I mean, I get a lot of pushback when people are like, this is like modern day social justice movement and you're mapping it onto, you know, Christianity. I'm like, no, go to the first century, right? Mm -hmm. Acts chapter 11 was really significant because Antioch was the first multi-ethnic church in history. Mm -hmm. It's when the Gentiles came full force into the church. And it was also the first time that the believers were called Christians. Mm -hmm. I think that's very notable and very significant mm -hmm. that these two go together. And it was, I think, the first like missionary sending church. Yes. In a sense, in the early Christian world. So it's like it's the first like multi-ethnic. Mm -hmm. It's the first place they're called Christians. And one of those two equal. So they're embodying Christ. Yes. By being multi-ethnic. And what does that mean? Witness to the world by yes. being sending a sending church. Amen. That's and it Antioch became the missionary sending base of all three of Paul's missionary journeys. Yep. And you look at his first missionary team, and he had people from, uh, from Asia and Africa. It says he has men from Cyrene, which is part mm -hmm. of Africa, and mm -hmm. um, you have men from Asia Minor, and they're all part of his mm -hmm. first missionary team. His disciple was Timothy, who mm -hmm. was half Jewish, half Greek, mm -hmm. right? And um, poor guy had to get <laughs> circumcised as a, an adult. Um, <laughs> I'm like, ouch. But it's um, one of the cons of interracial dating. You have to, you have to <laughs> that's the only con. Right. You'll have to get circumcised later. But but Timothy, you know, he benefited from both sides. Even Paul, who was monoethnic but bicultural. Mm -hmm. People think that his name was changed from Saul to Paul. It wasn't. Abram was changed to Abraham and Simon was changed to Peter, but he was always born Saul slash Paul because he's bicultural. Saul is his Hebrew name and Paul is his Greek or Roman name. And so he used the side of him that was most relevant to contextualize wherever he mm. went. And so he would switch his name around. So Man, I have, I have ne I've sat through seminary <laughs> Bible classes and I have never heard that, but that makes so much sense because the New Testament in Acts, it doesn't explain why Paul has that name switch. Yeah. Like it just kind of takes it for granted. But then it makes sense that he's first described as Saul because he's oppressing the the Christians because he's the Jew. He's the, the Pharisee. Right. So he's that's his Hebrew name. And then now he's a missionary to the Greeks. Don't use your Hebrew name. Use your, your Greek name, Paul. Oh, my gosh. That is mm -hmm. <laughs> I am going to geek out after this podcast <laughs> and go look that up. Oh, man, I'm going to preach to that someday. Anyway, uh, back to what you were saying. That's, yes. Oh, that is so cool. <laughs> keep going. Yeah. So, you know, when, when you look at the early church, there's so much breaking of dividing walls. There's so much multi-ethnicity. There's so much. Um, uh, today we use the word Hapa, H-A-P-A. Um, -A. This is a Hawaiian word, which means half. Because in Hawaii, there's so much interracial marriage. and uh, But the word Hapa has kind of made its way into the mainland now. And so, but Timothy was a Hapa, right? Mm -hmm. Being half Jew, half Greek. And Barack Obama was a Hapa, being half black and half white. And he, actually, he grew up in Hawaii, so he mm -hmm. would have known this word. We're seeing this Hapa-ness or biculturalness or the technical academic term is liminality. Mm -hmm. uh, liminal means you're straddling the border. You're kind of between two worlds. And even though I'm mono-ethnic, I'm like Paul, I'm bicultural because I'm Chinese-American. So. Gosh, like yeah. So I mean, Paulos, it's Greek. Oh my gosh, <laughs> Saul is Hebrew. Oh my god. Right. So you know, I was born with a Chinese name and an and an English name. So, mm. and I speak Chinese and I speak uh, English, and so I can navigate China and I can navigate the United States. And so mm. there, I've always felt this sense of liminality, mm. and this biculturalness. And now my wife and I are in an interracial marriage, and we have a bi 
cultural and biracial kid, mm-hmm. right? And so there is, and I think that this is representative of Christianity. Mm-hmm. The missiologist Andrew Walls, who's my academic hero, he's um, from Scotland, uh, founder of the Center for Global Christianity at the University of Edinburgh. But Andrew Walls says that we have the indigenizing principle and the pilgrim principle. Indigenizing principle means that all Christians are products of this world and culture. We're embodied in this world. We're enculturated in this world. We cannot escape our culture. We use language. That's culture. You, you, you can't escape culture. And we are all comfortable in culture and we all uh, need to operate out of culture. But the pilgrim principle says that we are aliens and strangers in this world. Mm-hmm. We are uh, of the kingdom of God. And mm-hmm. so it's both and. There's a liminality to all Christians. And I know usually liminality is we think of as bicultural or biracial or um, people who are, I mean, even if you're white, you, you could be a TCK, third culture kid or military kid or missionary kid. You know, mm-hmm. those people experience liminality as well. But um, actually, all Christians should experience liminality because we, we all have the indigenizing principle and the pilgrim principle. The sort of colloquial way of saying this is we're in the world, but not of it. Right. And so all of us should feel this. We we sometimes are part of culture and sometimes we're countercultural. Mm-hmm. And so but this is something that we need to understand as Christians. And this, I think, is the hope for the church and for the mm-hmm. world that mm-hmm. we can understand that if we can do these reconciliation things, that actually it's a missiological sign to the world that Jesus is Lord. Yeah. So you're saying we should all get the not of this world bumper stickers? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, you know, I think it's both. I think there's two sides to it. No, yeah, no, yeah. In the world, but not of it. Yeah, <laughs> no, so, I'm, with you, I'm with you. Yeah. I'm with you. I just think bumper stickers are funny. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, but I guess even to, to sum that up, some of my thoughts of just, I mean, thinking of in John 17, when he talks about that oneness, I pray that they'd be one. And then right. you look at the New Testament and Paul really picks that up and talks about us being one as the body of Christ. And it's like, where else is that oneness language? In the marital covenant in Genesis 1, you know, man shall leave his father and mother and become one with his wife. So, you know, if you are a Christian man and you are not comfortable with the idea of becoming one in a marital covenant with a black woman, then I think heaven's going to be really scary for you and uncomfortable because we're all going to be in that oneness with every tribe and nation and tongue. And so it's kind of one of those things where it's like, man, if you're not comfortable with kind of this oneness with the other ethnicity, maybe that's like in our dating world. Maybe that's why even in our kind of cultural world on Sunday mornings, we're still uncomfortable. Um, and I'm sure they play back and forth. But I guess. Yeah. Actually, may I say one more thing? Yeah, no, get it. So my wife and I love doing marriage counseling and reading marriage books and going mm-hmm. to marriage seminars. Mm-hmm. Not because our marriage is bad, because we don't want it to become bad. Mm-hmm. Right. I always tell people like, I hope you don't only go to the dentist when you have a cavity. I hope you go to the dentist regularly <laughs> to maintain your uh, dental health. Right. I have so many friends that I'm like, are you guys going to do marital counseling? Oh, no, we don't really have that many problems. I'm like, that's not <laughs> right. <laughs> like, that's not the point. Right. It's like when we had our kid, it's like we went to all these baby classes because we're like, we don't know how to do this. Right. And I think anyone who goes, Wait, your baby has a ton of problems. <laughs> like, I don't know how to raise a baby. So you go to yeah. baby classes and when you get into marriage, I don't know how to do a marriage. So you take classes. Think mm-hmm. of marriage counseling as like a marriage class, right? Yeah. How to, how to do it yeah. properly. So, and one of our favorite books, I mean, we've read all these different marriage books. Uh, some of our favorites were, uh, sacred marriage by Gary Thomas and, uh, Saving Your Marriage Before It Starts by Les and Leslie Parrott. Those are Christian books. But there was one secular book that we read that we really love, 
and this is by John Gottman. Yes. Uh, called Seven Principles yep. for Making Marriage Work. Yeah. Phenomenal. Yeah. John Gottman is from the University of Washington in Seattle. Mm -hmm. um, he's a psychologist, leading marriage psychologist in the nation. Yes. And even though he's secular, he's, he's Jewish. He's right? Jewish. Yeah. So he has like Judeo-Christian values mm -hmm. in his book. So, but one of the things that John Gottman, so we actually were up in Seattle last month because my wife is actually from Seattle. So mm -hmm. we go up there every once, every summer to visit her parents. And so mm -hmm. we're up there and we attended a John Gottman marriage seminar. Oh, it was fantastic. It was like yes. a two day event. And, and we got to hear from the man himself and mm -hmm. John Gottman. And, and one of the questions from the audience, somebody said, do you have any advice for interracial marriage? Mm -hmm. And his advice, I'll never forget this. He said, always assume that you don't understand hmm. and ask questions. That's beautiful. You know, I think that this actually should be for any marriage yes. because yes. whether or not you're in interracial marriage, uh, it's so funny because my wife and I, when we got married, we asked another interracial couple and we said, what's your best advice, you know, that you would give us? And they said, actually the intercultural stuff is not as big as the intergender stuff. In other words, hmm. the biggest cultural difference. It's not the biggest fish to fry. The yeah. biggest cultural difference is actually male female. Yeah, yeah, and so men and women are so different, mm -hmm. and so I think that taking intercultural classes is uh, helpful even for your marriage. But mm -hmm. I think a good rule of thumb is always assume you don't understand and ask questions. Um, and I think that's a good piece of advice. Gottman in his work in the Love Labs has just blown my mind in what he's discovered. Anyway, that is, I want to talk about him at some point in the podcast because the work he's done in Seattle is absolutely phenomenal. I mean, in Seattle, there's a lot of great psychologists. Dan Allender's up there too. Um, yes. where I'm just like, man, the Seattle's a hub right now. Les and Leslie like, Parrott are from Seattle. Yeah. They're at SPU. Jay Stringer, if you know that name. I'm uh, not familiar. He just wrote this book on okay. kind of sexual shame called Unwanted that's phenomenal. Um, but I guess to, to kind of close our time, what would be, say you have uh, a Chinese Christian man, maybe he's not even Christian, and he's listening to this podcast, and he's struggling with feeling secure in his body, or just feeling like he's attractive, or, you know, you have a, a white woman uh, listening to this podcast, and she just can't wrap her head around finding another race or another ethnicity attractive. Sure. What would be your hope for kind of both ends of the spectrum of individuals and intercultural and interracial dating right what would kind of be your your you know your praises of hope for them sure well in your white woman example um i had previously talked about uh, henry cloud and saying mm -hmm. you know i know we all have our lists but just try dating a whole bunch of different types of people that don't match your list and you'd be surprised that your list may go away or mm -hmm. change mm -hmm. yeah be open to that mm -hmm. right and for the asian male that you talked about you know, this is my story. And I say, hold on to hope. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, also be open to dating lots of different types of people. Um, but eventually you're going to find somebody who will value you for you. And that's at the end of the day, the most encouraging thing. All you need is one, right? Mm -hmm. You don't need everyone in the world mm -hmm. to value you, but the person you marry to value you. Mm -hmm. And Hey, you know what? Asian don't raisin, so you know, hold on to that. You got a lot of time. Yeah, he's gonna look the same for a long time, yeah. so you don't have to worry about that. You know, if they they say forty is the new thirty, with yeah. Asians fifty is the new thirty, man. Yeah, 
and I'm gonna just be old and wrinkly as a white man. <laughs> so you, I mean, if you marry me now, you're gonna get a good ten years. Is probably it. And then it's just <laughs> going downhill from there. Um, but yeah, man, Alan, this has been absolutely awesome. Um, I have enjoyed this time so much. So thank you so much for coming. Thank you, Colton. Um, appreciate it's, this. It's a pleasure. As always, we want to make sure we clarify this episode may have triggered you sexually. It may have brought up old pain, old shame, or even old unhealthy sexual behavior. With all of these things, we encourage you to tell someone about it. Don't keep it in. Don't walk alone. Invite people into your life. And as always, if you've enjoyed what you have heard today or enjoyed what this podcast is doing and what is it about, it would help us out greatly if you could leave us a review and if you could subscribe to the podcast. This helps us reach other people, and this helps us fulfill what this podcast is ultimately trying to do, which is bring hope to those who are trapped, those who are struggling, and those who are wondering what to do with sexuality. We hope that Alan's words today encouraged you, made you feel accepted, and made you even feel attractive. We hope that he has given you a hope for your intercultural dating and interracial dating beyond what you could have ever imagined. Okay, everyone, that's it from here. And as always, may the God of hope fill you all with joy and peace and believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope.